Welcome to Oh Brother, Not Another Podcast. With me, my name is Chris Bencio, Trace Burroughs and Migs Burroughs, presented by the newly transformed and fantastic Westport Library. Yeah, nicely done. Thank you. So um, I'm going to, for the audience, for someone who doesn't know who you are already, um, Crispin is um, a saxophonist, is that how you say that? A songwriter and producer who's played with uh, dozens of groups and musicians, including the Rolling Stones, James Brown, G. Giles Band. Correct me if I'm, oh, none of these are correct. It's all correct so far. <laughs> um, Darlene Love. Solomon Burke, Tom Waits, Ray Charles, Ohio Players, Mitch Ryder, Elvis Costello, Wayne Kramer, Dennis Coffey, David Johansson, Dr. John, Southside Johnny, Clarence Clemens, Iggy Pop, Buster Poindexter, James Montgomery Band, B-52s, Tom Waits, Iggy Pop, Joan Jett, and Robert Plant, and Joe Cocker, and I'm sure there's a bunch of others. Well, the only one you left out that I would include, sure. that I'm very proud of, is Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Yeah. And he used to have, um, this would have been probably in the late 80s, whenever he appeared, uh, he would have a pan- piano player would have to be supplied, a sax, tenor sax player and a drummer. So oh, I did oh, a couple yeah. of shows with him in New Jersey. Hmm. Oh, yeah, he used to live in Westport. Did you know him when he lived in Westport? I didn't. Oh. No, that was probably before. And, wow. And I got him, I got to meet him because he financed, I designed the Westport flag and he, when he moved into town, he said, I want to do something for the town, or as people said. And um, he financed the making of the, the flag. Amazing. But um, yeah, he was a mess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, you you were you knew him under probably better. I mean, performing with him, you know, yeah. as a sax player who showed up was uh, was he nice a nice guy or like demanding or like until you know, you know what happened? Uh, uh, we were rehearsing in the afternoon for this big show in a big theater, and you know he was it was all written out music, you know, and very you know he was very. Uh, Everything was very, you know, scheduled. And uh, at one point, I just started laughing in the sound check, you know, because I, I was, thought he was hilarious anyway. And he blew up into a rage at me for, you know, and, you know, came over and was almost threatening, you know. And I said, no, I'm sorry, Rodney. I will, you know, I won't do that tonight. You know? Of all things, he's a comedian. Yeah, you think yes, he would appreciate love you know, this. Was, uh, well, you know, you find out things when you work with people, you know. Um, but obviously, he was one of the greatest of all time stand-ups. As far yeah. As yeah, yeah, just kind of a sad life. But um, are you ever intimidated? I'm just curious with that list of names. And by the way, I was impressed by another list on your website of of the people you haven't played with, and there was only one person on that list, and that's me. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I just wanted to interject on a couple, two more credits. You're also. Um, Music director at the White House for events? Well, I, no. no? Uh, I did a couple of shows there where I was music director for um, these two producers I've worked with a lot, mm-hmm. um, uh, Bob and Peter Kaminsky. And, uh, but that was during the Obama administration mm-hmm. when they were doing those shows. And I also worked with them on a bunch of uh, yearly shows called the Mark Twain Prize for Humor at the Kennedy Center. Right, yeah. <clears throat> but the White House shows ended completely when with this administration, I think. Yeah. Know, they were informed. You know, <laughs> your services will not be needed. <laughs> yeah. And what does it sound silly, but what does the music director do? What, what all are you in charge of? In, in, in those kinds of things, which are television, um, I was in charge of putting a band together, um, having ideas for music, 
political selection, including um, in the case of the Mark Twain Prize, helping with finding a musical guest, a featured guest, writing the arrangements for the music, um, writing some original music, you know, intro music and outro, you know, and um, conducting that, you know, live, live that night to tape. So, and in the White House, things we did, they were more um, really uh, produced, pre-produced shows that we taped. So the first one I did was um, the Gershwin Prize for Humor, which went that year to uh, Carole King. So I helped put together a band, mm. including guys who had played on her famous records like Tapestry, uh, Danny Korchmar, who used to live here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the guests included James Taylor, uh, Billy Joel, you know, Smokey Robinson. And the second one was a... Uh, I didn't book those guests. In other words, it was all sort of handed to me to um, put together. And... The second time I did it, it was um, a tribute to the 50th anniversary of the National Endowment for the Arts. Um, and uh, same kind of deal where I, you know, had a, was given a slate of guests or, and, you know, helped deal with the, you know, in the case of someone like um, a Broadway star, a couple of them were involved. I would deal with their music director and get arrangements from them and... And I was allowed to, you know, I pretty because it's the White House, I could pretty much ask anybody I want to play in the band. So that was a great, mm-hmm. you know. But mostly on those kind of things, the core bands I've always used have usually been people I know in New York, you know, from being a studio musician and touring. You Does know. the White House give you a budget? Like, you got to stay only... I was given a budget, yeah. yeah. I was on all those things. Yeah. You know, I had to carefully, you know, parcel out, you know what had to be covered and how to do it. But again, it was those kind of things, especially the White House, it's, um, most musicians would want to do that if it's a friendly administration, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, money was not up. I, people didn't sure. angle over that. Right, yeah. There's a picture on your website of Joe Biden, with you and Joe Biden. Yes. And uh, his arm is very... It's a uh, good story with that. Is there a Me Too moment there? His arm well, <laughs> There was that, yeah. for sure. Which in <laughs> retrospect, I thought, wow. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, there's a good anecdote yeah. right there. So that was, I think, on that first one we did with Carol King, you know, it was amazing. And I had worked with her before, you know. And uh, this, it was in the East Room where these shows were, which is a long room, but not huge, you know, so maybe 75, 80 guests. And um, we very low risers, so right in front of, of the vice president, the president, their wives, you know. We finished the show, and I put my horn down, and I stepped down on the riser, and right in front of me was Joe Biden, you know. And he came up and hugged me. Oh. And we, <laughs> we started talking, and um, my the keyboard player I had on that was, uh, one of them was Leon Pendarvis from the Saturday Night Live band. And I looked at him like, take a picture, you know. And he got his, you know, his camera out, and Joe... We were just kind of talking a little bit, and he leaned in and hugged me, and in my ear he whispered, if I had your hair, I'd be president today. <laughs> That's a great... True, true story. Yeah. So that picture was That's a great right yeah. yeah. That's very cool. Do you ever find yourself... I mean, you're on on par with all these people, too, but some of them are just so legendary. Yes. Do you, do you think of them that way, or do you have to just block off that and just say, it's another musician, you know, I'm just doing it. I probably did. Yeah, with I mean, I think I learned, 
you know, a lot of what, um, a, a, a huge part of my life in the 80s and 90s especially was with three other guys, we put together a horn section in New York called the Uptown Horns. And we caught on really fast. It was just the right moment and we were the right people. And we worked really hard. Um, so I learned, you know, I think the first big tour we did and and record was with uh, the Jay Giles Band in 1983. And uh, I, from that point on, I pretty much learned, you know, things about how to deal, you know, you know, it's it's mm. best to, you know, try and keep as focused as possible on the work, you know, and uh, not be awed by their and don't history. give yeah, yeah yeah don't give anybody a chance to like <laughs> find fault with me, you know, type <laughs> thing. Uh, but I've been blessed because most of the people I most of the people I've worked with have been uh, that kind of people, you know, about their their art, you know. So that's the kind of people they're looking for. Certainly, the people like the Rolling Stones are like that, you know. They really take their music seriously. What Which is James, great because, like James Brown, how was that working with him? Uh, that was a little different, and that <laughs> that, that came about because of a former uh, Westport resident who passed away, Dan Harper. Oh yeah, Dan. I mean, he used to live right down the street. Yeah, yeah. he did. Yeah. Um, did and he was an amazing musician. I mean, yeah. one of the greatest musicians I ever knew in any really? format. You know, he played every instrument. You know, he could. A lot of his hit records were him, just him, and you know. Yeah, but um. When we first got together with the Uptown Horns in the early 80s, we he heard something we played on. And um, <clears throat> and he just got it a hold of one of the other guys, Arno, in the horn section, and said, you know, I'm really, you know, dig the way you sound and everything, you know. And we, had, we ended up playing on one of his first, maybe his first solo album, you know. And then he started calling us for things. Um, and then after, you know, that's how I first really got out to Westport was I he would call me, you know, later in the '80s, and I'd come out and do solos and stuff at his house. I remember I did worked on a record there here in Westport for um, Dusty Springfield. He did one of her later albums. Um, but um, with the with the uh, James Brown thing, we were on the road, the Uptown Horns, with Robert Plant and the Honey Drippers. Oh yeah, if you remember that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we'd been tacked on to the band he had as the Honey Drippers because that was like old rock and roll with horns, you know, like actually pre-rock and roll, you know, R&B. <clears throat> and, you know, it was on and off for a year. And at some point we were in maybe um, uh, in Canada, just north of Seattle, and uh, Dan Harbin called up and he said, you know, met the service had called Dan Harbin, and he said, I just wrote a song. Um, I'm demoing a song. I want you guys to play on it. And... Dan was the kind of guy who really liked us because we could go in and he just, we'd just sit around with him and toss around ideas rather than he didn't want us to write anything out beforehand on an arrangement. <clears throat> and we said, yeah, great, but we're, we're in, you know, Vancouver. And he said, oh, I'm in L.A., you know, and this tour was going down through California with Robert Plant. So we worked out a date and we, we were in L.A. at an off day. We went into the studio and he was there and he hadn't told us what it was. And he put up this song, which he said was a demo, which ended up being pretty much the, the finished master. And he put it up, and it was James Brown, you know, I thought. And I said, what is this? And he said, uh, well, uh, Sylvester Stallone called me. You know, I'm friends with him. And he said, I want you to write a song for James Brown. It'll, I want you to write a number one hit <laughs> <laughs> for James Brown, and it'll be the big song in our movie, Rocky Four." 
And, and so Dan said, this is the song. And he started playing and I said, you know, I haven't heard, James Brown hasn't sounded like that since the early 50s, you know, all his high notes, you know, just perfect. You know. He goes, oh, that's not, that's not Mr. Brown, that's me. It's a guide vocal to, you know, oh. he's gonna learn the melody. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that, which is flabbergasted. So we, we spent like a whole day making up parts for that record. And then he said to me, I want you to play a alto sax solo. And I pretty much was passed out by that time, you know, we'd been on the road. And I kind of don't remember recording it. <laughs> and at some point he said, um, you know, I did it probably about eight passes of a solo. He said, that's it, you got it. And I said, whoa, I, I could fix something. He, no, no, I've got it, I can do it, you know, with the mixing and stuff. So, and then about, well, by the t we were still on that tour later in the year and it was on the radio and we got back to New York and it was like number one. And uh, he called up and said, now, we're going to do a whole album with James Brown in New York called Gravity, um, and you're going to meet him, and you're going to like, you know. So that's when we really got to know James Brown, um, and he was a character, you know, mm -hmm. one of my heroes. But you know, yeah, yeah. But awesome. once again, you meet somebody who's your hero, and it's not always exactly what you might have right. fantasized. You know, he's he's a, he was. I mean, the legend goes he's very demanding, right? Perform, yes. First well, he first of all, he was allowing to be produced by Dan Hartman, mm -hmm. and pretty much Dan. And his writing partner, Charlie Midnight, wrote all the songs, which is, that never happened again too much with James or before and after that, uh, Brown. But D James Brown respected Dan that much to work with him. I, I'd say that's a mm -hmm. high honor, you know. But yeah, he was, uh, he was impressed because Dan, when we walked into the room, he was sitting there with his then wife and his, and the guy who used to announce him, you know. James Brown, you know, was but, that guy, yeah. Danny, you know, was there. And he looked just like he looked in the old, you know, Live from the Apollo. You yeah. Know, which was mind-blowing to me, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he was kind of scowling us. So we had, like, shoulder-length hair, and, you know, we'd been on a big rock and roll tour. We, and we looked like that, you know. And I think that threw him back, you know. And Dan kind of rushed in and said, you had to call him Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown, these are the Uptown Horns. They did all the parts and arranged all this stuff and Crispin played the solo on Living in America and, and he just kind of kept shaking his head you know mm, mm, mm. and I I this was my big moment you know to meet one of my heroes you know I guess I had met him once before in another uh, thing I used to do which is write about music but I, I said you know we wouldn't be playing today and I wouldn't be playing if it hadn't been for your inspiration and your guys Maceo Parker your sax player he said, we wouldn't be doing it if we weren't for you. And he goes, I bet you wouldn't. <laughs> and then the trumpet player we had at that point, uh, Paul, had very long hair, you know, and really looked rock and roll. And he came up and said something to that effect. And we were both saying, you know, you, you've, been, uh, you've been such an influence on us. And, you know, we meant it. We really meant it. And he just kept shaking his hand. He turned to his wife and fighting and goes, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> My music touches all kinds of people. <laughs> <laughs> so then we did the whole album, and it was yes. a great, great experience. Yeah. Dan, Hart, can't say enough about Dan Hartman, a Westporter. Well, we, I, I used to, I was a, used to be a drummer, and I, I was heard he was he lived down there. So I put my flyer in his mailbox. He called me over, so I go in his house. It was very awkward. He had a drum set. So I said, "Do a drum solo." Yeah. So I was like, "Oh God!" So I say this thing. Then he goes, "Let's watch television." 
So we're watching the Johnny Carson show, <laughs> and I was thinking, I'm starting to get a feel that he doesn't really want me over here as a drummer. And um, and so I just said, oh, okay, thank you, and um, i got to go home now. <laughs> funny. Well, That's funny. I may have heard you, because I've lived in this house for 40-some yeah. years, and when I was married, and we'd hear Edgewater Hills right down, I mean, you could walk there in a minute. And I, I knew what house it was, the old sea captain's house down there. And um, At that point, he moved into another house later. Oh, okay. Right? But we'd hear music yeah. coming from, we'd say, but we didn't know who, who he was at right. the time or what was going on. We just said, but those people have the greatest parties. And the music is so, you know, they're turning up those Stevie Wonder songs and dis the guy was there. I mean, Oh, he was, <laughs> he was something else. I mean, he was a great drummer. Oh, he did. He was I mean, he played bass mm -hmm. in, um, you know, Edgar Winter's band and... Um, when they did Frankenstein and all mm -hmm. and he wrote uh, Free Ride really when he was in that group, when he played guitar on that. I mean, he was just, you know, and he was an incredible vocalist. And later in his career, he um, really specialized in working with great female diva singers. So that's that was that Dusty Springfield thing I did. Oh, but yeah. he worked he worked on that record um, with Tina Turner, um, Simply the Best, you know, and he had some huge... Disco era dance hits, you know, um, instant replay and um, relight my fire with some great disco divas. You know, he was just excellent, mm -hmm. amazing musician. Um, I've heard this story a couple times, but that's always great to hear it again. The the Chuck, the Chuck Berry and Keith Richards uh, story. I'd be happy to relate that. <laughs> yeah. again. Um, so uh, one of my partners in the Uptown Horns is a guy named Arno Hecht. And, you know, we had actually played together. I, I moved to New York at, uh, I was living before that. I'm originally from Detroit, but I was in a band and we moved to Boston. And I had lived in Boston previously because I went to Berkeley School of Music for a year when I was, you know, younger. Um, and um, so Arno and I met when I first moved to New York. And the two of us, two sax players, you know, used to, start playing with people, you know, in clubs, CBGBs, you know, places like that. And um, we we knew this guy, Jerry Brandt. I don't know if you ever remember him. He was the guy who ran the Ritz. You know, remember that venue yeah, in New York? Yeah. Which is now Webster Hall, but uh, it was the Ritz. Famous, you know, incredible venue. I'm sure you've been there. He had been an agent in the early 60s at William Morris who was assigned this new band to book in America called the Rolling Stones. <laughs> so, you know, he's kind of a famous guy mm -hmm. and a character and a great, great guy, you know, really was supportive of good music, you know. And he had this place, The Ritz, and he booked it. So he called us and said, um, I'm booking Chuck Berry for the first time into The Ritz. I want you guys to put a band together to back him up, right? Because Chuck always had put together bands wherever he went. He never carried his own band since the early days. Famously, he did that, and he always um, didn't. He didn't seem to really care about the quality of the, the musicians or the, you know, he was there to get the money in his back pocket, yeah, yeah, yeah. cash. cash it always had to be in cash. Yeah. And he had a famous clause in his contract that said um, he needed two Fender Twin Reverbs, obscure kind next to each other biamped a certain way and nobody ever had that and and there was a clause in his contract with the agency that said um if they're not there when i arrive for sound check uh i get another immediate five thousand dollars in cash you know wow. so 
And he always had that in his back pocket, in like you know, sticking out to here when he was actually on stage performing. So we put together a very carefully, you know, um, curated band for, for Chuck. Besides us, now a lot of you know people may not know that a lot of his old records, his great records, had a couple of saxes on them. Actually, you know, uh, Nadine, um, that song um, that was in. Uh, the Quentin Tarantino movie uh, goes to show you never can tell. You know, yeah, had yeah. great saxes in it. Pulp Fiction, Pulp Fiction, yeah. Wanting but his song, you know, mm-hmm. was in that. And so we had the band all assembled, and he shows up in the late afternoon, and he looked at uh, me and Arno, and he said, "No horns. I don't want any horns." What? You know, oh. and um, <laughs> you know, we weren't kids even then. You know. So I think I stepped up and I said, you know, Chuck, you're really going to want us because we know all your, we know all the real parts on your records. I must have been convincing even to him. You know, he was about like six five, and he went, hmm. He goes, uh, well, uh, what about Honky Tonk? Do you know Honky Tonk, which is an old Bill Doggett tune from the early fifties? And I said, yeah, it's in F. And he goes. Oh, real musicians. <laughs> All right, come on. That's what so thus began a relationship. We've backed him up a whole bunch of times. That there's more to that story, as you know, right? Right? Yeah. 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 Uh, so we had a great and, and the, that place, the Ritz, held about three thousand people, which was really packed, and it was packed, you know. And the show went really great, and we jammed. He wanted to actually jam. We did honky tonk. You know, which I don't think he did much. And after the show, our dressing room was on one side up a flight of stairs and his was on the other at that place. And Arno and I decided, well, we're going to go over to his dressing room and thank him and say, thanks, Chuck, you know. Um, And this was after we'd relaxed, you know, a little bit, you know. Uh, And uh, so we were a little spaced out, but, you know, we were... You know, we were right-purposed. And we climbed these stairs, and we're... I guess I can tell this story, because yeah, Chuck is gone. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's one of my heroes. So uh, we go up, and there's nobody in the outer dressing room. We can hear somebody's in the inner dressing room. We walk in, and the only people in there, virtually, are Chuck and two young ladies. And I, fairly young. I don't know how old they are. I feel that's sort of like a right. regular thing with him. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were kind of one sitting on the way. <laughs> We were talking, and uh, we stopped short and and just sort of backed out because the vibe was we shouldn't be here, you know what I mean? Mm. And I think we said, oh, I'm sorry, Chuck, we, you know, we and he was enraged to see, you know, that we had walked in on him, and he got up, he kind of put him down, you know? <laughs> he got up, and he's a big guy, and he started coming after us. So he tur- in doing that, he turned his back on the door that came into that dressing room from out, from the room, you know, from the Ritz. And I, we virtually ran down the stairs, you know. Got to get out of here. This guy's <laughs> going to kill us, you know. Was, we got to the bottom, and then there was a big racket from where we had just come. The timing was split second, you know. And it was so loud that we were like, a lot of people, oh, we got to go back and see what happened. So we went back in. And apparently, as he turned to come after us, the door burst open and Keith Richards came in. And this oh. was right before they were going to do that movie, you know, the, the, that Keith, you know, produced. He came in from 
behind Chuck, and he was ahead of all his people, Keith, to hug him, yeah. just hug him and say hi, you know. And Chuck turned around instantly and just clocked him. And so when we walked Jeez. in the room, Keith was on the floor. Oh, my out, God. Out. Yeah. <laughs> and now all the entourage of, you know, are coming in after. And we're in, you know, in the doorway, the other doorway looking, and uh, Chuck's going, well, I didn't know who it was. Some guy came up to me, you know, you know. And he was explaining, you know, and Keith was kind of coming too, you know. Was Keith mad? Like, was he like, no, yeah. no, he, he really, you know. And I got, to, we got to know him later because we worked for him. No, he, that's one of his real, maybe his one of his biggest heroes musically. You know? Yeah, that's why he made that movie as a tribute, you know. That's right. Um, but no, it it got straightened out, and it, <laughs> it, you know, I don't think it was talked about that much at the time, you know. So. But the tagline to that is, a year later, Jerry Brandt called again and said, we're having Chuck back. And he's asked for you guys, which is like, whoa, yeah. wow, we're really great, you know. <laughs> so we put the same band together. We get out there, there's 3,000 kids. We're playing. And in the middle of the set, I looked on the side of the stage on the wings, and there's Ronnie Wood, you know, you know, just like mm. digging it. And he's signaling... I want to come on and sit in to us you know we we're on his side and so chuck we, we sort of like signaled to chuck and chuck looked over and he stopped the band because the rule with chuck is i put my foot down everybody stops or you're fired i'll fire you off the stage you know so he did one of those band shuts completely on a dime shuts out and chuck Berry on the microphone goes uh ladies and gentlemen i just like to apologize i just want to say make a public announcement he's he's having going like this to ronnie and he puts his arm around him and he says, last time I played at this establishment, you know, there was a little misunderstanding. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to say, you know, everything got worked out. And I, how about a big round of applause for Keith Richards? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. what could you say? <laughs> yeah. you know, okay, Chuck, you're the, he's the king, you know, anyway. Yeah. So, so that's my yeah. Chuck that's story. Well, we did play with him more after that, you know, and always had a great time. Does he ever rehearse? I mean, or is it just you just jump oh, in? Oh, no. No. Yeah. No. There's no time he, for that. He, his approach really was, um, if you don't know my music, you shouldn't be here. And, mm -hmm. and I could, you know, we could understand yeah. that. Um, but we were honored that after, you know, including that first time, that he wanted to jam on stage mm -hmm. in the soundtrack. So we would, you know, play not Chuck Berry tunes, you know, maybe jazzy blues tunes that we knew the heads to, you know, then he would love that, you know, because he really was an all-around music fan, I think, mm -hmm. you know, and definitely knew, you know, the Chicago jazz scene, I mean, when he was coming up in St. Louis, you know, so. Do you want to, we only have a couple minutes left, Did anything local or new, local, national, global you well, want to talk um, about? I'm involved with um, two other guys, uh, that you know, Bob LaRose from Barbecue's restaurant, yeah, sure. and Peter Prop. Um, we are formulating the uh, uh, festival this year at Labor Day Festival at Levitt Pavilion. Right, right yeah, now, blues, uh, you know, barbecue. talking acts, booking and putting it together, oh, yeah. and we're sort of like a little, a little three-way partnership now on that and some other events. Um, another one uh, later in the fall is the Connecticut Ukulele ukulele festival 
which will be at the mm. Pequot Library in, in Southport, which um, Peter uh, started last year, but now is, we're kind of all pitching in on that. And we're going to start a little concert series at Bobby Q's restaurant. Um, I think the first one, that we're going to have James Montgomery, mm -hmm. um, who is actually my oldest friend. Really? He my, was a 323 for a while, right? Yeah, yeah he came down and played yeah, with us. That's right. But he and I grew up together from the time we were 12 really? in a suburb of Detroit um, and stayed friends our whole life. So um, we see each other. I saw him a couple of weeks ago up in New, he lives in Newport. Mm -hmm. and, uh, he's going to come down and do a concert with us um, at Bobby Q's. So I'm, I'm involved in that. Um, I, uh, I do play with live with uh, Darlene Love. Um, and... Uh, you know, my band Cracked Ice, I have this band, uh, I think we're going to be playing at the Levitt this summer during the series, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I do recording stuff out of my house in my, you know, what I call my studio. But really, you know, I've learned how to do that. When people send me um, MP3s of something they're working on, a rough mix, I can lay, lay in the, um, if they want a sax solo or horn parts, so I do a fair amount of that these days um, mm. at home. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Wrap it up and really appreciate you All right. spending the time in our yeah, luxurious studios here. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> What's not to love? <laughs> <laughs> Almost next door to Dan Hartman. But, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,